0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1191.
1: Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show.
0: Homeschooling parents, it's going to be time to start thinking about next year before you know it. Let me recommend to you the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum, which I've been using with my daughters. It's going to preserve your mental health while it gives them a top-notch education. Plus, get $160 worth of free bonuses when you use my link, ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. This is my Independence Day episode. It has a little bit to do with Independence Day because at the end, we talk about what there is to celebrate about Independence Day a little bit, as, as I recall, if I remember this interview correctly, because this is actually an appearance I made on the Libertarian Christian podcast over at libertarianchristians.com. And as I recall, I don't think it had anything to do with Christianity whatsoever. They were just asking me about the Constitution. So we went through some history about it. We went through some forbidden history about it. And I think it was a pretty good episode, chock full of information. So I hope you enjoy it. As I say, libertarianchristians.com is the website for those folks. Now, before we get started today, I would like to say a quick word on behalf of my friends over at Free Talk Live, where I've been a guest before. They've got the largest pro-liberty radio program in the world. It's a panel of libertarians. They'll take calls from anyone. And they broadcast on the same stations that have major liberal and conservative hosts, so they bring the ideas of liberty to a whole new audience. Talkers Magazine calls them the number 29 most important radio show in the U.S. That's the only site that does an overall ranking. So definitely check out the podcast, which you can get at listen.freetalklive.com. Those guys are worth listening to. All right, you are ready? Here comes some fun Constitution info, even for those of you who claim you don't care about the Constitution. Here we go.
2: Tom, thanks for being with us.
0: My pleasure, gentlemen.
2: You know, when I started becoming a libertarian about a little over a decade ago, you were one of the biggest influences in understanding how America was founded the Constitution, the principles of liberty, economics. And I suspect that a lot of our listeners have heard you in the past and are indebted to you for all of your all of your support in our education. I mean, you just pump out so much material. So I just want to thank you. It's just amazing to be talking to somebody who has pumped out so much material that we can just, you know, it, it'd take a lifetime to, to consume it all. So uh, I don't know how you keep going, but uh, I'm so glad you do. Well, I sure appreciate that.
0: Very kind of you to say
2: so we're we're here to talk about the constitution and inevitably we'll we'll talk a little bit about American history as we do that. The reason I wanted to bring it up is because it seems to me that most people don't really respect the constitution very much. They and when I say most people, I'm I'm talking about the people I kind of encounter on Facebook or you know some of the the articles that you might read, you know, oftentimes from the left. I mean, anytime there's a shooting, we have to end up talking about the Second Amendment. And there's just a lot of, you could call it disrespect, but it really just seems like people think that the, the document is useless or it's archaic or, you know, as Obama said, it's just a piece of paper. I think he was being a little more respectful with that in context. But uh, people just kind of like, ah, it was written so long ago. It doesn't really apply today. You know, is, is the Constitution still important? And as libertarians, does is there any use, usefulness to it for us?
0: All right. Well, it's, it's a complicated answer because there are ways that I think it is important, even though in the grand scheme of things, I tend to side with Lysander Spooner on the Constitution. So anyway, let's unpack all that. First of all, the fact that we have a First Amendment, That recognizes the freedom of speech doesn't grant us the freedom of speech, obviously, but it recognizes that it exists, I think has seeped into our culture to the point that. The United States is where you would least expect some of these anti-free speech laws to be passed. It's because I think that people who want to pass laws like that would be running up against something that is ingrained in who we are as Americans. And I think part of the reason it's ingrained in who we are as Americans is that it is written down in the Bill of Rights. And I, I don't think that can be denied. I think that is a major reason that Americans feel this commitment to freedom of speech because they feel like it's part of what it means to be an american because there it is in one of the foundational documents one of the the crucial documents in all of american history highlights it in the very first amendment so there is that secondly i would say that certainly people who argue there are things you can say against the constitution but if you're going to argue that it's not worth our time because it's old and it was written by white people and some of them held slaves and whatever. If that's your argument, that's, I think, not helpful because what that argument always leads to is what we need is a document that changes with the times. You know, They call it a living, breathing constitution because it's – Frankly, it's kind of an annoyance to have a document that is so strictly interpreted that we can't do all the things we want. We can't implement all the programs we want because – the original understanding of the Constitution wouldn't allow them. Well, thankfully, we've moved past that archaic way of interpreting it, they would say, and instead now we have a very flexible way of interpreting it. We interpret the general welfare clause very broadly. We interpret several other clauses very broadly, and that allows us to do the kinds of things that a strict interpretation of the Constitution would not allow. So they'll say that it's great that in this day and age you know we are no longer chained to the strict words of the constitution but you know we're more or less observing the general purpose of the constitution which was to foster the general welfare you get arguments like that i have no respect for that argument whatsoever and you can see all over the place the the framers of the constitution making clear that That is not a legitimate argument. It's not like they didn't think of that. They thought of it and rejected it. And so when the people ratified the Constitution, they ratified it with the understanding that you can't just change it informally because it's getting to be a pest. And it's an annoyance that you have to go to all this trouble to amend the Constitution to get it to be the way you want. Alexander Hamilton even said that it may be that people want the Constitution to say something that it doesn't say but and it may even be that for years and years they act as if it says something other than what it actually says but that is no substitute for the solemn decision by the people in the form of an amendment to change the document That Until that happens, we presume that the original meaning is in effect. Now, that's Alexander Hamilton talking. I think that was Federalist 69, if I remember that correctly. That's even Alexander Hamilton talking. And remember, especially given the time of year that this episode is being released, let's bear in mind – The significance of the American War for Independence, for constitutional history, is that the Americans were fighting against the British Constitution and what it had become. The British Constitution had indeed become a living, breathing constitution. It was not written down, and that was part of the reason that Americans later decided they would write theirs down. Because they found that arguing against the British Constitution or arguing, uh, arguing a case and using the British Constitution as part of your argument was like nailing jelly to a wall because they could not precisely nail down what it said. Because the Americans would say, what you're doing, let's say in barging our doors down and invading our private homes to snoop around, that is not something that's been considered to be a customary power of the British government. Therefore, you can't do it and it's unconstitutional but then they would come back and say but parliament authorized whatever x y or z thing that you're upset about and so therefore it's ipso facto constitutional well that's not how americans understood the british constitution so it became this document you could never nail down and the government was always finding wonderful new powers for it to exercise well that's what americans fought against so the idea that we would want to prefer that system for ourselves today when our ancestors fought to liberate us from that system is particularly perverse. So, so let me just recap what I've said so far. The argument that the Constitution should be living and breathing is refuted by the American Revolution itself. We were fighting against that very system. Um, but I, at the same time, I would say that I personally don't believe that any piece of paper is going to restrain people who want to exercise power. If all you have is a piece of paper and it's not backed by a will to resist, then it's not going to be worth a whole lot. And that really is the problem that we face today. We have all the arguments in the world that the Constitution really does support only a very limited government. But if you give an institution a monopoly on the power to tax and the power to initiate physical force, why would they limit themselves to that? Why would they say, well, the Constitution says X and Y? Why wouldn't instead, why wouldn't what has happened be expected to happen, where the law schools are totally corrupted, where people are taught constitutional law in a way that justifies the government in its compendious interpretation of its powers. You get a complete corruption of the legal profession by people who want to be part of the game. They want to be part of that system. They don't want to live under some limited government where they have no powers. So we have the system where most people are raised to believe that the Constitution is, is very flexible, very malleable. Uh, even though if you just read the ratifying conventions and and the wording that was decided on at the Philadelphia Convention, it would be quite clear that that is not the original intent. I, I think this is not very hard to prove. But so in other words, why would you not expect this outcome where instead of politicians scrupulously observing the limits on their power, they're constantly grasping for more and more power. And meanwhile, other people who are power hungry wind up spinning justifications for why these people are correct. That's how it's actually turned out.
2: So I I can imagine a critic listening to what you're saying here say, oh, okay, so they, they elaborated, they wrote it down, they spent a lot of time arguing and elaborating on what the meaning was. We can go back and kind of understand if we just kind of You know, I think of the general commerce clause about, you know, regulate and the word regulate means something completely different than what it does than what it does today. And so if we understand what it meant to them and and we can say, oh, well, okay, well, that's what the Constitution says and therefore we should abide by it. But why should we listen to them? Because this is over two centuries later that we're dealing with problems they couldn't even conceive of. I mean, is there what's what's so special about the founding fathers? Why can't we just, you know, not start over, but like just do what we want because they're not around to tell us
0: here's why we should or shouldn't do this. Well, you do have the amendment process for cases like that. There really is a case that they could not have foreseen. They did foresee that they couldn't have foreseen it by introducing the amendment process. So if if really we've we've got these intractable issues that can't be dealt with other than by amending the Constitution, then you go ahead and amend the Constitution. The danger is saying here's what the people expressly agreed to, but gosh, those people lived so long ago. I think we can just say, ah, eh, forget that. But wait a minute. Hold, hold on. What, what kind of system of government is that? That there's this, ah, uh, forget that? What what system of government is that? Is that a republic? Is that a democracy? Is that a monarchy? Is that an oligarchy? It seems to me that if you're going to open yourself up to, well, I know there are some principles we're supposed to be living by, but oh, they're just getting to be such a burden. Instead of consulting the people and asking, do you want to hold uh, – you know, at least be honest about it. You want to hold a new constitutional convention, at least be honest about it. At least say that's what you want to do.
2: You'd think people who are really against uh, the wealthy becoming too connected with Washington would be
0: wary of that sort of uh, politic, yet they're not. Right, right, exactly. Because this kind of argument can be turned against you five minutes later. Well, now we don't like your principles, so we're going to pretend like those aren't there. And we're going to—presumably, you you would want some stability. You would want—that's why we have something called the rule of law. You want some stability. You want to know what are the— principles by which I'm to live my life and, and by which the go- the government is to govern itself. It we At least with the Constitution, you could say, at least we have something concrete that was spelled out and you can go consult it. Jefferson's view was you should not need a law school education to understand the Constitution. It was written so the average person could get what it means. At least we have that. You want to replace that with, oh, this has become a drag. So from now on, we'll just let judges decide what the government's powers are. I don't think I want to live under that. And at no time was I even, did they even have a pretense of consulting me about whether I wanted to live under that?
1: So, along those lines, Tom, let's talk about this idea of judicial supremacy and judicial activism. You know, one of the great historical resources that I actually learned about from you reading your work a number of years ago was the Abel Upshur essay. And for our listeners, we'll, we'll link to that. It's definitely worth reading. But the argument has to do with this idea that if the courts are a part of the government, how then can they be the judge in their own case? Because we're told, oh, well, the courts are supposed to uh, be the interpreters of what these laws and the Constitution mean, and yet they are, in fact, a part of the government. So can you talk to us about that and what the founders thought about this idea of judicial supremacy and and really where it came from with the early courts?
0: Well, judicial supremacy is certainly not evident if we look at any of the debates surrounding the Constitution. It is the branch that is discussed by far the least. And if it was imagined that the courts would have the kind of powers we grant them today, you know, where uh, major social issues are just decided by nine people, hey, you better believe it would have generated a heck of a lot more discussion at the time than it did. So I personally am interested in the the uh, approach taken by Jefferson, which was the idea of concurrent review, where all three branches have a responsibility to uphold the, the Constitution. It's not like the judges are divinities. And so we refer all our controversies to them. It, the The president also has to uphold the constitution. That should be part of how he decides whether or not to veto something. The Congress should uphold the constitution by not passing law uh, legislation that's unconstitutional. So uh, certainly there's there's that now i I do believe some sometimes people get this wrong they say there's no justification there's no basis for the idea of judicial review where the courts would review legislation and pronounce on its constitutionality i I think there is uh, evidence for that in the in the ratifying conventions that it was taken for granted that there would be on a limited basis at least not in a crazy uh, that the crazy hyper Uh, example of it we have now but on a limited basis there would be some judicial review Um, but from the jeffersonian point of view the court's role would be largely advisory so that okay everybody knows what the courts have said and then you proceed from there but it really is a case where the government is is deciding its own case now you may say but the courts are separate from the executive and the and the legislative branches so they are somewhat independent well that's true they do collect their salaries, however, from the federal government. That doesn't mean that that's going to make it impossible for them to be impartial. But certainly if you were ever in a situation where you were in a dispute and somebody seriously proposed that the, the same person you're in a dispute with, the, the person you're in a dispute with uh, is going to be decided by people who are paid by the person you're in a dispute with. You know, you wouldn't. Agree to that. You say, this is obviously stacked against me. But especially, especially in the current case where the vast majority of law students are being educated in a system that holds up federal supremacy as the norm, that holds it up as the desirable outcome, as the norm, as what the Constitution demands. And if your case relies on an argument that we live in a decentralized republic and that after all every time the constitution refers to the united states it refers to it in the plural because it conceives of the us as a decentralized collection of societies if if your case rests on that type of argument well there's nobody on the court really who's who will have been educated in that line of argument even though that is the indisputably correct line of argument and so You're up against a monopoly legal system where all the arguments you might want to make to to defend yourself are more or less ruled out. Because they're the opposite of what these people learned in law school, where this is why my friend Kevin Goodsman says, "Don't make sure you don't confuse the Constitution with so-called constitutional law. The Constitution is one thing. You can figure out what the Constitution means by consulting the ratifying conventions. That's what Madison and Jefferson told us to do. But instead, what people learn is not that. They learned so-called constitutional law, which is a collection of iconic Supreme Court decisions, many of which were wrongly decided if we use the Constitution and the original intent of the Constitution as the, the lodestar. And therefore, you are put in a position where y- you are not really getting a fair shake because the arguments you might make that are completely correct are automatically ruled out because the monopoly legal system you have to argue it in – it consists of people who have been trained in the opposite view
1: one of the things that you sort of touched on there tom was the the form of the union and there amongst the founding fathers especially like from the hamiltonian wing compared to the jeffersonian wing there were definitely some different sort of views in what kind of a system they were at least trying to get to, towards ideally so can you can you break down the difference between sort of the monarchical or nationalistic views of the union and the federal or compact views of the union and how that sort of played out in these early debates.
0: Well, there certainly were people who, well, there certainly were people who, there was a continuum, no doubt, but on the extremes of that continuum, you certainly can find people who wanted, for example, the national legislature they imagined themselves creating to have plenary powers. That is to say, they could, they could f- uh, formulate legislation on more or less any topic they wanted to, and, and this would have basically followed in the in the uh, footsteps of the British model. There were others who thought that the government being created ought to be more limited and ought to have only those powers that are delegated to it in the constitution – Indeed, expressly delegated. That was the language used in at least half a dozen ratifying conventions, and that was how they understood the Constitution. Only those powers expressly delegated. And moreover, the ideas, the ideas of the, the, the we might call the compact theory of the union, whereby the union is not one indivisible blob, the world was lousy with that. You know, big indivisible blobs. The world's got plenty of those. We want to be different. Remember all these people who talk about the, the, you know, American exceptionalism and we're so different. And so many of those people then go on to interpret the Constitution as if the United States is the same as every country in the world. It's not. It's meant to be a federation. Uh, the the American founding fathers were very fond of the Dutch Federation, for example. The idea there is that the primary units of the United States are not Isolated individuals that government can just steamroll over. The the constituent parts are the states because the states, after all, existed before there was a federal union. Obviously, you have a bride and groom before you have a marriage. You have states before you have a federal union. And the states, therefore, decide that they want to join this union, but the states are the primary units in it. And so that's why somebody like James Madison could say in the report of 1800 that there there are cases where all three branches may fail us. The executive, legislative, and judicial branches could all fail us and betray us and betray the Constitution. And in that case, in the last resort, it falls upon the original parties to the Constitution to resolve the question. Well, who are the original parties to the Constitution? Not an undifferentiated mass of individuals but rather the individual states and of course look at the way the constitution was ratified not by a national vote by a big blob not by a vote of an undifferentiated mass of individuals but by what by conventions in each of the states because the states were the building blocks so everything about early american history would make you believe that the compact theory of the union whereby what we have is a compact among states not a uh, not a single blob being created but a compact among states we see that in the declaration of independence there's a reference to these states not this uh soon to be blob but these independent states and as international law was understood in the 18th century the fact that you join a confederation does not Mean that you are forfeiting your sovereignty as if that were even possible. So, so, in other words, if you just because a state joins the union under the Constitution doesn't mean that it loses its power. Uh, It's its powers over a variety of areas. It may delegate some powers to a federal government for the sake of its own convenience, but that's for the sake of its own convenience. It could recall those powers if it wanted to. But that's not what we're taught. Of course, in fact, what I just described to you, most people would think of as treason. That's how bizarre the situation is. What I described to you is America. What I described to you is the Constitution. What I described to you is all of American history leading up through 1800 and beyond. Uh, Where in the early republic, the states believed they could resist if the constitution was violated. Uh, We see southern states doing that, but much more often we see northern states doing it. We see people casually discussing secession because of course the union is not some idol to be worshipped it's a merely utilitarian contrivance and if it doesn't work out we'll try some other arrangement meanwhile we have people calling themselves conservatives who have made an idol out of what is obviously just a i mean to of all things to make idols out of a political arrangement has got to be the most debased possible candidate for that so m- m- point that i've tried to make to people o- over time is that When you look at American history, what do you see over and over again? You see the states, before there was a federal union, exercising the attributes of sovereignty. Even when they were still not even recognized as states um, by much of the world, even during the American Revolution, you see some of the states exercising attributes of sovereignty. During the American Revolution, it was decided that the crime of treason would be conceived of as not having been committed against a blob of states but as against individual states because that's what the united states is or as they used to say that's what the united states are so that in fact you don't even find i would say for the first 30 40 years of american history you don't even find a systematically argued out uh position Opposing this, the so called nationalist view, where what we have indeed is a single blob and the states are merely administrative units of the central government, you don't even see that spelled out in any systematic way till probably the 1830s. Whereas the compact theory of the Union was spelled out repeatedly, like in the 1790s by John Taylor of Caroline or by St. George Tucker or these great early jurists, because that was the thing. It wasn't, that's why there are people who say, I think it's Brian McClanahan who says, I don't want to talk about the Compact theory. I want to talk about the compact fact. Hey, folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show.
2: How did we get from this important foundational principle of, of the founding of the United States to people saying that when people utter the word states' rights, they're being racist? Like it just seems like a complete and, and, I, you can explain how we got there if you if you have a theory on that. But uh, how do you what, what do you say to leftists who say that, oh, well, that's just a, a white supremacist or,
0: you know, a racist way of talking about, you know, government? OK, well, first of all, that's just, that just shows they have an IQ of 50 because they're not going to argue me on the merits They're going to argue with me on some consequence that they expect might occur as a result of this. Look, if you want to look around the world at central governments and how they've treated the minorities that have lived within their borders, and you want to take that position as against states' rights, I'll take states' rights any day of the week. You want to take the Soviet Union? and it's record against minorities you want to take the soviet union and its record against uh, the ukrainians or i could find african countries and their record against uh, the asian minorities that have lived there i could look at the armenian minority in the ottoman and the the among the ottoman turks and i could go on and on with cases where central governments have gone after minorities in ways that are particularly vile now sure states have also gone after minorities cuz they're states and they tend to have terrible people running them. So nobody has clean hands here. And I'm not saying that we should in any way support the states blindly, but I am saying that if you break power up into little bits, it's going to be a lot more difficult to carry out atrocities against any sort of people than if all jurisdiction is held in the hands of one source. Now, I hate to Fall into this trap of referring to Hitler, but it's just too easy in this case because Hitler said right there in Mein Kampf, he said that we've we got to get away from this whole states' rights thing in Germany because we need to have one voice to be able to express its will through the whole country. Okay, so in other words, you're telling me that you're going to say, well, you know, Hitler was wrong about some things. But when it comes to political organization, I sure side with him. Are are you sure that's the position you want to take? And then secondly, let me point out that when I argued this position at the Yale Political Union last year, I ended up making the audio of that into an episode of the Tom Woods Show. So if you go to TomWoods.com slash episodes – and you look for Yale on the page, you'll find it. And we had one of these Yale kids who got up and said, you know, so far we haven't mentioned race and slavery. And I feel like that's central to this. And I just thought, oh, it's like I planted that kid in the audience. Just just get out of my way. Let me get up there and smack this, this down. And I did, and I went through and I said, all right, yeah. You want to do that? You want to talk about race and, and argue that that's what this is all about? Now, leave aside that the federal constitution – uh, allowed for slavery so that's not like some just mere state constitution this was understood to be allowed from the start as, uh, and there were there were federal fugitive slave laws there is plenty plenty of blame to go around when it comes to slavery but if you're going to say that th- that the states and arguments for the states were motivated by race or slavery then how do you explain the fact that the first time the states really uh, proposed resisting a federal law, was over the freedom of speech in the Alien and Sedition Acts case of 1798, Virginia and Kentucky. Or the New England states asserted their powers as states, uh, even proposing secession over the embargo that Jefferson imposed. Uh, Some of them uh, were very much opposed to the War of 1812, and in fact, Daniel Webster proposed that they should nullify – any federal conscription law that was carried out, so that so there's that has nothing to do with uh, with certainly with racial slavery. It would have to do with military slavery, I suppose. Then you have the tariff of abominations that was nullified in in uh, the in 1832 33. Again, this is not related to slavery. Contra- Everybody at the time was talking about nothing but tariffs over and over and over. That's all they talked about. And then in the 1850s. With the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, you had a number of states that thought that was unconstitutional, that just because there's a Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution doesn't mean you can do any old thing you want to, to enforce that clause. So, in fact, you had the Wisconsin – Wisconsin, of all places – the Wisconsin State Supreme Court held that its legislature was completely in the right in resisting that act, and then they quoted Thomas Jefferson – In talking about the power to nullify unconstitutional federal laws. So understand, when there was an attempt. So in other words, there was no state that tried to nullify an anti-slavery law. Because really, how many anti-slavery laws were there? So obviously this was not a, a pro-slavery thing, the idea of state nullification of unconstitutional federal laws. There weren't any federal laws against slavery to nullify in the first place. So, But when it came time for this, the enforcement of the uh, of Slave Act of 1850, the Wisconsin State Supreme Court quoted Jefferson saying, we have the right to say, no, we're not enforcing an unconstitutional law. So in fact – The idea of state nullification, not only was it not used to support slavery, it was used against slavery. So now I've taken us up through, well, many decades of American history to show that the principles of the powers of the states have been used for all kinds of honorable and noble purposes. And you'll say, oh, but in the 20th century, it was used for purposes that we find distasteful. Governments are going to do things that you find distasteful. But is that – it, so, But the point is, if you look at the whole sweep of American history, the whole sweep of American history shows that this principle was used to fight against oppression time and again. It's not infallible because anytime you're dealing with government, you're going to deal with bad people. That can't be helped. But when you look at the overall record of centralized states versus decentralized regimes, the decentralized regimes constantly – come out better for reasons that should be obvious, which is why you don't generally run into a huge list of dictators who say, now that I'm in power, I'm going to make sure I have as little power as possible, and I decentralize power into as many small areas as I possibly can. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Why doesn't it happen? Because that runs counter to what every dictator in the world has ever wanted.
1: So along these lines, Tom, you know, we, we've talked a lot here about many of the positive things uh, from the founding generation, and especially from the Jeffersonian wing. Now let's talk a little bit about some of the negative things about the Constitution, because we're often told that, especially by conservatives and people who have a, let's say, a very keen sense of personal patriotism that, oh, the Constitution was really meant to limit the government. But when you actually go back, and look at it compared to the Articles of Confederation, it's the exact opposite. The Constitution was meant to increase the size and scope of government over and above what the, we had under the Articles. So I kind of have a two-part question here. Number one, what do you think society would American society would look like today had we stayed under the Articles? And number two, could an argument be made that the Constitution itself is quote-unquote unconstitutional because of the dubious way in which the Constitutional Convention was called against the the orders that were present under the Articles of Confederation to modify the Articles?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, certainly nobody was authorized to just scrap that thing and throw it in the garbage the the articles so that's certainly extra legal on the other hand they could come back and say but we took our what we did that was extra legal and we put it up to a vote through the state conventions and the argument at that time was that the highest the people in their highest capacity their highest voice is expressed by means of the state convention and so if they if they say it's okay then you know we're off the hook so that i think would be the way they would argue now in terms of the you know, living under the articles confederation it's hard to argue this point because we've all been raised in the same way of thinking like like it's so obvious that the constitution was better it's so obvious that it's not even considered to be worth considering just as a thought experiment the alternatives. And I can't remember – this was a while ago, I'll grant you, but I checked out of curiosity how many likes on Facebook the Articles Confederation had. Just out of curiosity because the the Constitution had you know, millions of likes, something like that. Well, we love the Constitution because uh, you know the, our teachers told us it was great and that the system that preceded it was obviously stupid and backward, and you don't want to be stupid and backward, do you? And in fact, let me check right now. I'm just dying to know. I'm dying to know. I'm looking it up right now. Let's look. Yeah. How many likes for the Articles of Confederation? Well, let's see. Well, I'm I'm actually trying to find one group called the Articles of Confederation. It's hard to find. Articles of Confederation, there's a community with 19 people who like it. There's a book about it. There is something called the Articles of Our Confederation. Articles of Confederation, seven people.
2: Articles of Confederation, explain. That's the highest number at 2,900.
0: Yeah, and even that's not the document itself. That's just, hey, I like having it explained. So now I can't even find it anymore. Now, that's just, that's weird. That's Orwellian. That it's not, uh, trust me, the argument for the Constitution was not so obvious that nobody should even consider thinking about the alternative. And that's, that's the kind of result you get. When you know when somebody runs for president, one of these uh, backwater third world countries, and they get ninety nine point nine percent of the vote, and we look at it, we say something screwy there. Well, something screwy here too, because yes, it's true that there were problems under the Articles of Confederation. That's true, but the problems under the Constitution make those. Remember how they used to say in like the nineteen eighties and nineties that in the nineteen fifties we had problems with the schools, but when you look at the complaints of the teachers, it was chewing gum. Talking in class. Now it's like murder and drug dealing and all that. And you say, geez, I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't have complained so much when it was just gum chewing. That's how I feel about the Articles of the Confederation. You know, whatever we whatever problems we had, all right, one state wants to impose a tariff on another. All right, eventually you convince people that's not in your interest. You work that out. But when you look at the problems of the U.S. government today and all these agencies and the bureaucracy and how you can't ever seem to scale any of it back because it all has a life of its own that – It exists for the sake of its further preservation. It exists for the sake of increasing that budget, and then it'll spend every cent to prove that next year it needs a bigger budget. And then, yeah, we citizens may try to cut that budget, but we have lives and jobs and families, whereas they spend 24 hours a day lobbying for increased budgets for their agency, not to mention the catastrophe of a foreign policy we have. There's no way. In a decentralized America, that there would have been a decision to yeah, let's have this same Middle Eastern policy that's just been so super for the past fifteen or so years. It's no way, or that that it would have been thought yeah, it's clearly the right thing to do to enter World War One. Can't see any negative consequences coming from that. There is there are ways in which the world would be dramatically different in dramatically better ways that we never even consider because we just assume that progress means more centralization. In fact, that's That's the tone that you get in your history textbook when they talk about, for example, the centralization of Italy or the centralization of of Germany in the 19th century. That's just assumed to be part of the general unstoppable sweep of history, that you go from stupid backward decentralization to forward-looking positive centralization. Oh, yeah? Well, you know what? Maybe the 20th century would be a lot different if there hadn't been German centralization. How about that? Has anybody even bothered to stop and think of that? we don't because we have this prejudice in favor of centralization or why was it that all the different areas of Italy uh, you know whether it was from from Piedmont to Sicily, why is it great? Why is that necessarily great? That there would be a movement to meld them into one people and thereby suppress a lot of the distinguishing characteristics of the different regions. Why is that better? The same people who who yammer on and on about diversity are the same ones who don't even bother to ask this question. Of course it's better for there to be one Italy citizen. Ah, you know, I don't think that way. I think – and I think we need to think in new and fresh ways. And that's – when I look at the Articles of federation versus the Constitution, I look at it in this big picture and when i when i look at the problems under the constitution i say any day of the week give me the articles in federation i can i'm prepared to deal with those problems
1: and one of the other interesting things is that this isn't just something that cropped up in the 20th century the violations of the quote unquote original intent of the constitution began almost immediately by some of the very same people who wrote the thing. I mean, you you mentioned the Alien and Sedition Act. Uh, even Jefferson, when he was considering the Louisiana Purchase, is kind of thinking like, well, technically this is unconstitutional and there should be an amendment, but I don't really have time to get an amendment. Uh, so can you just talk about how quickly this sort of broke down and what that says for any kind of you know, hope or attempt that we're somehow going to get back to the original intent and stick with it this time around.
0: Yeah, you could say it broke down immediately because already, like by 1790, 1791, um, like the early 1790s, Patrick Henry is already complaining and saying now, you know, out of Virginia, already complaining, what is going on here? Because of just even things that today we would consider benign, but if you were really, really a stickler about the Constitution and you wanted to make sure they didn't step one inch off that document, then things like you know, the assumption of the state debts um, by the federal government or um, you know at par or you know, the National Bank or any of these early controversies, you would say, now, hold on just a minute. In fact, Hamilton had to develop this whole implied powers thing uh, to justify the National Bank. But that doctrine, in the hands of unscrupulous people, would justify almost anything. So he's already he's already prepared to do that and to say, yes, we need a national bank, and it's it seems necessary. And uh, you know, I have this method of constitutional interpretation whereby, if we elites think something is necessary, we can come up with a rationalization to implement it. They were doing that in the early 1790s, and you know they're already uh, already on the house floor you've got uh, james madison having to complain about the interpretation of the general welfare clause and the way people are thinking about the constitution they're getting it all wrong already and uh, you, you still see evidence that some people understood the original constitution like madison when he was president the bonus bill veto that's a great thing if you've never read that you should google and read the bonus bill veto he just wasn't letting them get away with anything uh even even again things you would think of as benign like bridges or whatever his view was if it's a bridge that you want to build with federal money then you better amend the constitution to authorize you to do that otherwise we have no constitution but yes very early you see uh these sorts of problems which makes you wonder maybe there maybe we are again reposing our confidence in an idol if we think a piece of paper is going to restrain people who have no interest in being restrained. And then you say, oh, but the people, they will be the solemn watch, you know, the solemn guards over the really, will they uh, look at how easily and quickly the American American public was corrupted? You know, we'll, will we'll, look, we'll cut you in on it. You know, we'll, we'll cut you in on a bit of the action as long as you shut your mouth about it. And it looks like a lot of people have been quite happy to take that deal. You know, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the
2: amendments uh, because, you know, those are the things that become talked about when, for instance, there's a school shooting or an egregious violation of free speech. So um, why, why, does, why does it seem that some amendments are sacred to some people on one side of the political spectrum while others are kind of sacred on the other side of the political spectrum and they have a lot less respect for some of the other, some of the, the
0: ones their opponents are, are in favor of? I think that's just human nature. I think it's the same reason that everybody would have been up in arms if Hillary Clinton had passed the current federal budget, but they bite their tongue because it's Donald Trump and vice versa. I think it's the reason that people were all upset about George W. Bush's foreign policy and his you know, his position on civil liberties and things like that, but then when it's Barack Obama, they – deprioritize that. Unfortunately, they packed up their protesting signs and went home. I think that's just, unfortunately, the way uh, people are. We tend to be very tribalistic and politics only encourages that in the worst ways imaginable.
2: Do you have any amendments that you would remove or maybe even add?
0: Uh, (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I'd have to go back and think about the, about amendments I would remove. Well, obviously the 16th amendment, certainly for the, the income tax. I'd get rid of that. Uh there are probably some, probably some other – I'd have to sit and think about it, but certainly the income tax I would take away. Uh, in terms of amendments that I would add, let's see. I think Jefferson wanted to prohibit the government from ever borrowing. Now, that's a very radical approach. Of course, that just means they'd inflate. And you think, well, don't worry. We'll have an amendment against them inflating. But <laughs> uh, you know, if you actually read the uh, – there's a guy named Edwin Vieira. Who did wrote one of the largest books I've ever seen called Pieces of Eight. And it's a history of money in, in, in the Constitution and in constitutional law. And it's quite clear from what Vieira writes that that the framers did envision a hard money system. It's true that you know that the, the stuff about gold and silver in there, you know, is dealing with the states, but but still when you look at, for example, what the word dollar meant. And the word dollar is in the Constitution. If you look, for example, about um, – when we're talking about having cases heard and, 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 and trial by jury and stuff like that, there's a reference to $20, right, if, if the case involves a matter of $20 or more. We've kept that even to the present day. Well, what does dollar mean? There was no Fed creating dollars in those days. Dollar had – it was a specific kind of coin that existed at that time. So there's a reference to you can you can uh, reconstruct what Americans at that time thought about money in large part from just reading what's in the Constitution and, and what the commentaries on it were, uh, and even there they but they got out from under that. So it's very very hard to take these powers away from them when they want to exercise them. If they want to exercise them, they're going to come up with some way. If all if the only obstacle standing between them and enriching themselves is coming up with some half baked interpretation of some clause, <laughs> that it's going to happen. But you know there are lesser if you have lower expectations. Uh, Like In other words, if you think there's an amendment I can pass that will keep the government strictly limited, I I think that's you're expecting too much. They've proven that that's not going to work. But if you could change the institutional structure of the thing, then maybe – so in other words, it wouldn't depend on the interpretation of some clause, but it would depend on the way you're setting it up. Then there are ways I think you might be able to limit government. And for example, what if we said that if 26 states voted – to repeal a federal law, it could be repealed. Well, I don't see any way you could interpret that that wouldn't allow it to work. So in other words, you don't have to worry that they'll interpret that in some crazy way. I don't see how you could. I don't think there is a way to do that. And I think, yeah, that wouldn't solve all our problems. But if there are deeply unpopular laws and Congress, you know, let's let's just imagine a world in which Congress is unresponsive. (laughs) Imagine that. You would have a second institutional way of bringing it about. So in other words, if I pass a law uh, – if I ratified an amendment saying um, we're not going to allow laws to pass on the following topics, uh, well, then I just have – then they just reinterpret what topics means or something. Then I have no hope of that working. But if I have an institutional way of stopping it where we don't have to rely on the interpretation of some sentence, but instead the states, let's say, could say – we don't like this law, we want it repealed, maybe that could lead to the repeal of some laws. So I would want to institute, in other words, more modest amendments like that, because the more modest they are, the better chance they have of working.
2: You know, we're releasing this episode uh, the week of 4th of July in 2018, and— you know, I've always kind of looked at the 4th of July as sort of a, I don't know, like a Thanksgiving for libertarians. Like there's a lot to be thankful for that we live in a country that started off with the kind of document where individual freedom was prioritized, was uh, not taken for granted. How do you how do you see the 4th of July personally? I mean, do you celebrate it? Is it important to you? And and if so, like what do, what do you recommend libertarians to do uh, with respect to, you know, the, on the 4th of July?
0: Well, I like it. I, I support it. I, I'm And I do know some people. I, I know a few libertarians and I know plenty of like hard right wing traditionalist types who don't celebrate it. But I don't see that we would be in a better position if we had stayed under the British. Uh, you know, they're even worse than we are in all the areas that matter to me. I mean, on the other hand, I, that's not the only option. A, a third option would be that A peaceful resolution of our differences could have been affected, and that certainly is possible. We can't rule that out. But yeah, I celebrate it because I, I like the general principles uh, of it, and I certainly like the idea that of uh, decentralization and a grouping of states that did come together for a common purpose but that otherwise are just a, a grouping of states and a recognition of individual rights and stuff like that. I think that's something to be celebrated. So you know, I like once in a while to be able to be just a regular American and not have to be – dissenting from everything 24 hours a day. I feel like Independence Day gives me a chance to be a regular American for one day out of my life, and I'll take it.
2: Well, that's a good reason to celebrate, I suppose. So uh, yeah, we're, we're going to end with that. Um, Tom, thanks for being with us and for giving us uh, you know, an introduction a bit to the Constitution, some of the history behind it. We, we really enjoyed our time together.
0: I appreciate that. If people like any of this stuff, they will probably enjoy the Tom Woods Show at TomWoods.com. And I have a bunch of books that I actually give away for free at TomsFreeBooks.com. So check those out because they're very zingy and they will help you win debates just in case you happen to run across an uninformed person on Facebook. If that should ever happen, then TomsFreeBooks.com will bail you out.
2: Well, great. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes page as well. And thanks again, Tom.
0: My pleasure. All right, folks, that is our program for today. Remember this week and next, just three episodes a week, because I've got so much going on, but we're still producing an episode of Contra Krugman every week, which you can check out over at ContraKrugman.com. Thanks for listening.
1: Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.